Thank you for joining Mind Your Brain, a podcast of meaningful workshops to improve the quality of life for those affected by a brain injury. Our goal is to give you tools and tips to empower you on your own journey. My name is Candace Gant. I'm a brain injury survivor and founder of Mind Your Brain at Penn Medicine and the executive director of the Mind Your Brain Foundation. I'm also proud to be a co-chair of the Pennsylvania Brain Injury Coalition that works closely with the Pennsylvania Brain Injury Caucus in Harrisburg, advocating for meaningful legislation to help brain injury survivors. We have an important resource to learn about today, the Social Security Administration, otherwise called SSA. We want to give you the tools to understand and manage your disability claims. Joining me today is Spencer Bisson. Spencer has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a law degree from Florida State University. He worked in the private sector for two years prior to joining the Social Security Administration in 2010. He worked in the appeals court for almost four years, reviewing thousands of disability decisions for compliance with SSA's complex rules and procedures. He then worked at the hearing level for seven years, where he drafted almost 2,000 decisions for SSA administrative law judges. After working for SSA for more than 10 years, he wanted to help demystify the complicated disability system. His first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why Is It So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It? This explores the obstacles that disability claimants face as they try to access benefits. So welcome, Spencer, and thank you for being on the mic with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You have a remarkable background, and I'm so excited to hear more about the work that you've done in this area and how you yourself are advocating for brain injury survivors through your work. Thank you. So we've got a lot to get to, and I'd like to start with a question about how are disability decisions made? You apply, how are they made? Well, there's a difference between the different levels of review, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know. There's an initial determination which starts at the state level with a state reviewer. And then if you're denied, then you would go to an administrative law judge who's a federal judge who works for Social Security. And interestingly, the decisions, even though they're supposed to be made in the same way, they're often not made in the same way. And part of the reason for that is that there's usually a different amount of evidence uh, at the initial level versus if you, when you go to the judge. And part of the reason for that is that a lot of people don't have a representative initially, but then after getting denied, they realize, well, we're now in a full-on fight with the government here to get the benefits that we deserve. And so a lot of times that's when a person will go and get a representative and the representative can help the person gather evidence from their medical sources. And so the decisions from the judges at the hearing level tend to look a lot different just because the medical record looks a lot different. Um, but the, the way that they're supposed to decide 
the case at both levels is based on something called the sequential evaluation process. And basically that's where social security looks at your evidence and decides what medical impairments you have, how they impact the mind and body. And then this is the part that a lot of people either forget or don't understand. There's a third part, which is how the impact on the mind and body translate to impacting your ability to work. Mm -hmm. So it's not enough to just show I have an impairment. I have a brain injury. That injury obviously affects my ability to think, to concentrate, to interact with people. You also then have to show that how that impacts your ability to work. And regardless of what job you had in the past, if you can do a simple, unskilled job that doesn't require a lot of interaction, where you're capable of being minimally supervised, if, if a judge finds that you can do that type of a job, something like a dishwasher in a restaurant mm-hmm. or a grocery bagger, then you're probably not gonna be found disabled under social security's rules. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, I'm, I'm happy to know that definition for sure. So tell me, Spencer, how do I find, I know we're going to go off script a little bit, but I'm curious about how do you find a representative? It's, it, so I'm sure talk, you look them up in the telephone book. Yeah. So I do talk about this in the book, not only how to find a representative, but why it's so important to have one and also how they get paid. Because with any professional, especially a legal professional, people want to know, how do I find one? How do they get paid? What's the catch? Yeah. Is it worth? Um, and that information is obviously all in the book. But the short answers are, it is 100% worth it. Uh, and they get paid a, a fixed amount determined by Congress and set by the Social Security Administration. So you don't have to worry about large legal bills. You also don't even have to worry about paying your representative because They get paid a fixed amount and they get paid automatically by the Social Security Administration from your past due benefits. So if you win your case, the representative gets a certain fixed amount sent directly to them for their fee, and then you get the rest sent directly to you. And moving forward, all of your your monthly benefits going forward into the future and your Medicare benefits, those are all yours. The representative doesn't get any of that. And again, I explain all of that in the book. As far as how to find a representative, there's a great organization called NOSCR, N-O-S-S-C-R, called the National Organization of Social Security Claimant Representatives. It's basically their trade group. I'm not a, a member of NOSCAR. I never have been. And I don't actually even take uh, cases on on my own. I'm not a claimant representative. So I don't handle my own cases. So this is, I'm being paid nothing by NOSCAR. Um, But the reason why I mention them is that they represent so many claimants representatives all around the country. And they have a link right at the top of their webpage where you can say, here's where I live. And it'll give you a, bunch of claimant representatives in your area. And I think hiring someone local is a really good idea. Um, During the pandemic, we were doing a lot of things over the internet. 
But I think it's really helpful to sit down, especially if you have hundreds of pages of medical evidence, to be able to sit down with someone, with a lawyer in their conference room and lay everything out and have that person be able to truly understand that person's story so that that lawyer or non-attorney representative can effectively present that case to social security. You're developing a relationship with them so they'll know exactly uh, what you're looking for and they'll, they'll get to know you so they can present the case to- That's right. Yeah, they can the- get to know you. They can get to know your medical records. Right. Um, they may have relationships with doctors in your city mm-hmm. or hospitals in your city where they can get future records because as the case is proceeding through the hearing level, that could take a year or more and you're continuing to see medical sources. And so if you're in, I'm just going to pick a random city, if you live in Oakland, California, mm-hmm. having a representative in Oakland, California, it's just much easier to, for you to see that person, for that person to go to the doctors and hospitals in Oakland versus if you have a representative in Massachusetts and they're going to be trying to do everything over the phone. It's, it's just less efficient. Mm-hmm. And, and Spencer, I wanted to go back, circle back to make sure I understood. So there's no upfront cost associated with using an, an, this uh, Social Security NASCAR? The, there's no upfront cost with any Social Security representative. Oh. And the reason is the way the Social Security representatives earn their fee is all established by Congress and the Social Security regulations. When you hire a Social Security representative, they're going to present you with a one or two page piece of paper. And obviously you should read it. Everyone should read everything before they sign. Mm-hmm. But basically what it says is it lays out their responsibilities and the amount of the fee. But the amount of the fee is set by Congress. So it should always look the same. And it's 25% of your past due benefits up to a maximum, a cap of $6,000. Later this year, that's going up to $7,200. And that's only of benefits that are past due, meaning you had a right to get those benefits before the decision that approved your claim. That's fair. Everything moving forward is yours. Your Medicare benefits are yours. And the other 75% of your past due benefits are yours. So the representatives at $6,000 for the whole case, which could last a year or more, they're not really making a lot on each case. It really for them is a volume business. The way that representative offices work is they take lots and lots of clients. They know that they're only going to win some of those cases. And then when they win a case, they know that the fee is going to be limited, but it's nice for them because they don't have to worry about getting those fees. Those fees come directly from social security. Guaranteed. So so it's some fee guarantee for them, but it's also a fee guarantee for the claimant because you know exactly what your attorney is gonna be paid. Perfect, perfect. So Spencer, that leads me to my next question. Why are so many people denied at the initial review? We talked about that earlier and you suggest that it has to do with the diagnosis and the literature that you have or the evidence. Can we talk about that a little bit more? That's right. So if you think about uh, a variety of impairments, back impairments, knee impairments, but also mental health impairments like depression, anxiety, or even brain injury, 
uh, which the Social Security Administration regulations refer to as a neurocognitive disorder. Mm -hmm. Sure. The typical situation is someone is has some kind of events that prompt them to apply for disability. It could be something acute like a car accident and they're in the hospital and that is the reason they can't work. Or it could be something chronic and long-term and they lose their job and their unemployment and benefits run out. And so that's what prompts them to apply. But somewhere along the line, there's something and someone then the claimant says, okay, now today I need to go apply for social security benefits. And on that day, that person typically, unless they've read my book and they know what to expect, typically they're not really prepared for that application. You can do the application on the social security website. It doesn't take more than a few minutes, but then the social security administration says, okay, now send us your medical evidence. Well, at that point, I mean, think about your own medical records or my medical record. Most of us don't have well-organized medical records. We may not even have our medical records. We're relying on our doctor to keep them or our acupuncturist uh, or our chiropractor who may not even keep written records. So the records we are able to gather are sparse. They're usually not chronological. They're usually not organized. And that's what happened. That's very common. And so when the Social Security Administration gets these initial applications, they get medical records that are incomplete, that don't really tell much of a story, that don't explain those three things that I said earlier that you really have to show. You have to show your diagnoses. Well, that might be in there. You have to show how those diagnoses affect your mind and body. Well, that might not be in there. It all depends if doctors have said, here's how this impairment affects the person's functioning. But then the third thing is you also have to show how those medical impairments then impact your ability to work. And almost nobody has that in their medical records. The doctor would have to say, you have a brain injury, it affects your ability to concentrate for more than 30 minutes at a time. Well, but why couldn't you do 30 minutes at a time throughout the course of a workday? And so without thorough explanations and a, a large amount of evidence over a long period of time in an organized chronological way to convince those reviewers that you meet the agency's definition of disability, it's really hard to get approved at the initial level. Now, having said that, at the initial level, the agency does approve around 30% of claims. So it's not impossible. Yeah. And, and typically those claims are really the more severe cases. Someone who's paralyzed, someone who has a serious brain injury. Um, I actually have a, a family member um, who sustained a brain injury and uh, he experienced a long period of hospitalization and rehabilitation. And so when his family went to apply for social security, they had thousands of pages of medical evidence and they well-organized chronological, lots of sources were involved and so they were able to be approved 
at the initial level. But for a lot of other types of impairments, uh, a back condition, uh, a rotator cuff impairment, mm -hmm. um, anxiety, for a lot of these other conditions, especially if the person hasn't been getting a lot of medical treatment, it's just really, really difficult to convince social security at that initial level to approve your claim. That's amazing. So I think that we're, what we're saying is that caregiver plays an important role because with a brain injury survivor trying to collect that data and that evidence is so difficult. And so without an advocate to help you organize that information, that's even maybe before you find a representative, that's an important key, important component to your success. That's right. And that's why I say the book is not just for claimants, it's for their family members, it's for caregivers, uh, it could be for nurses or doctors so that they can understand what their patients are going through. Right. It could be for social workers, people who work or run a nursing home. But the other thing that's important to think about is it's not just what kind of evidence do I need, um, but also what kind of evidence do I need for each impairment? Because a lot of times people have more than one impairment. Right. Someone might have a back condition and anxiety, or there's a brain injury, but before that, they also had problems with their knees and couldn't walk very well. And Social Security will take into account the whole person and the limitations from all of the impairments. And so that's why I decided in the book to include a section about evidence. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical professional, but as an attorney working for Social Security evaluating disability claims, we were given a certain amount of limited medical training so that we could understand the medical records right. and apply the law to that evidence. So I wrote that section of the book from that perspective. Um, and I say right up front, I'm not a medical professional. This is not a medical assessment. This is a legal assessment of the types of evidence to prove different types of conditions. Uh, and I, I felt that that was really important to include in the book because that is one of the concerns that so many people have is, I know I need evidence, but I don't know how to get it. I don't know where to get it. I don't know what to get. And so I, I wanted to make sure to put that resource in the book for people. That's brilliant. I think that they, you need a roadmap for that. You need to understand those documents you need. That's, that's perfect. And, and Spencer, you said that about a 30% of people are included, claimants are approved, which I think is just a miracle. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, what do you do if you've not approved the first stage? Is what, what are the chances of being approved in later stages? So overall, Social Security has roughly around ballpark a 50% approval rate, which if you think about it, well, maybe that means I could just flip a coin and maybe I'm approved and maybe I'm not. But that's really actually not how the math works out because of those 30% of people who are approved up front. Mm -hmm. For those 70% who are not approved up front, the approval rate after that actually drops to under 30%. Because of those remaining 70%, only around 20% will actually be approved later. So your odds, if you're not approved up front, are two out of seven. 
And there's a variety oh, of reasons. Mm-hmm. There's a variety of reasons for this. Um, one of the reasons people aren't approved initially, but then do get approved later, as I said earlier, is because the evidence just doesn't tell the whole story up front. The person usually will then get a representative and the representative will help them secure evidence, organize it and tell the story they're trying to tell so that the judge can approve their claim. But as far as those other five people out of seven who are denied, there's a variety of reasons. It could be that the evidence is insufficient. It could be that they didn't get a representative to help them tell their story so it's incoherent, but also the agency actively incentivizes judges in a variety of ways to deny claims when they can. So once you- Incentivize to decline to, that's that's just shocking news for me. And how are they? How are they incentivized? Well, it's a complicated answer. So for the full answer, you have to, go explore part three of the book where I talk about that. But I worked at the Appeals Council, which is at headquarters uh, near Washington, D.C. And part of my job at the Appeals Council was to review certain hearing offices or certain judges, large samples of cases Mm -hmm. to see if we could figure out why the judge was doing what they were doing. Right. And what I would notice is a lot of those cases would be uh, favorable decisions, approvals. So in other words, the, this quality control initiative was looking at a sample of favorable decisions and trying to figure out what went wrong. So if you think about that, they're looking at only favorable decisions and they're trying to figure out what went wrong. The implication of course is approving claims was wrong. And so there are other ways um, judges can be uh, provided extra training if they're approving too many cases. Well, the implication again is that if your approval rate is high, then you need training. You're not trained enough in the process to understand the evidence, right? So, so there are certain ways that the agency doesn't just come out and say, deny more cases, but they strongly suggest to the judges that they should be deciding cases a certain way. Um, And again, that's not all cases and that's not all judges. There are over a thousand judges across the country. And so they all have different quirks and characteristics Um, I worked for a judge that had an extremely high approval rate, uh, over 80% of his cases he approved because he was just a sympathetic person and he didn't think people were lying. He looked at the evidence and he said, I don't think these people can work with their impairments. And the agency uh, gave him some extra training. Right. Uh, to make sure that he understood how he was supposed to look at cases. And he worked through that, but a lot of other judges, and part of this is about who the agency looks for when they're hiring judges, the certain personality traits that they want in their judge core. But uh, a lot of other judges that I I wrote decisions for had 20 or 30% approval rates. And that's 
really more in line with what you find at the hearing level, which when you combine that with the 30% who are approved initially, that gives you your approximately 50% overall approval rate. That hurts my heart. Yeah, to know it. Well, that the system is flawed, and and it's like I'm sure many other, many other government, or uh, parts of the government that have those challenges. I, I, well, I, I wrote this book. I wrote the book because I wanted people to understand that that is ha- the case. That that is happening. This is and the reality. Section, this is the reality, and I have a section at the end of the book talking about how we can improve the system. But this is the system that we have currently. And so this is the system you have to work with. Right. And it is a fi- it is overall about a 50% approval rate. So there are things claimants, their family members, caregivers can do to, as I say in the subtitle of the book, to improve your chances, to, to make things easier on yourself. Yes, so and, tell us, that's great. We wanna know, how do I get approved? What is the right. so 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 there's a whole part uh, as I said part three explains the hearing level to you so that if you do get to that point you understand how that's going to work and you know ahead of time the book provides so many different reasons that you should have a representative and explains how to find one and how they get paid the book explains just the difference between for example the so- supplemental security income program and the Social Security Disability Insurance Program. The SSDI and the SSI programs are two very different programs. And knowing the difference before you jump in and file your claim is really important. Knowing the five-step sequential evaluation that the agency uses to decide claims Mm -hmm. is important, for example, because you need to know you need to be able to basically run a simulation, right, in your brain. Well, if the judge finds that I have an impairment and that I can't work, oh, step four is my past work. Maybe I'm going to have a problem there because of my past work. And then step five is, can you do any other work? So knowing how the decisions are going to be made prepares you for when those decisions are made, for when you get to that point. So I structured the book so that it was the information that you can use at each step of the process from before you apply to when you apply to the initial level to the hearing level and even appeals. If you lose at the hearing level, if the judge denies your claim and you need to appeal, I wanted to make sure that the people reading the book can use this book as a resource all throughout the process from today I, even maybe I'm not even impaired, maybe just a, an average American worker who at some point in his or her life will have an injury or an illness or something and may not be able to work. And maybe they want to know how that system works to someone who is impaired and needs to apply right up through all the way through the process to appeals. I want to make sure this book is usable by any American worker or their family member or care work, uh, caregivers or, or anyone as a resource to know how this system works. Because if you can figure out and understand how a system works before you get into it, or at least as early as possible in the process, you really do give yourself the best chance at not only being approved, but just having the 
easiest time as you make your way through that process. That's, that's brilliant. And I'm so thankful that we had this opportunity to talk today because this is such valuable information. I can't tell you. And I'll make sure that in the remarks of this podcast that everybody has those links and that information that you've shared with us today. And indeed, knowledge is power. And, and one other thing about the book, yeah. I just want to make sure people understand there's also a glossary in the back. And it's not a dictionary definition glossary. I put a glossary with really simple, plain language so that if someone uh, is a brain injury survivor and maybe uh, if your memory isn't quite as good and you're reading the book and you're, you come across a term that was 100 page, introduced 100 pages before and you're thinking, I don't remember what that means, mm -hmm. I put a glossary in the back so you can go to the glossary and go, oh, okay. I'm reminding myself, this is what that term means. That makes sense now. And you go right back and start reading the book. Uh, I, I feel like that's going to be a really useful resource while someone's reading the book. And of course, after, right? If you read the book at the initial level and you're denied and you're hearing as a year and a half later and you, you forget who the vocational expert is, you can go straight to the glossary, go down to V and remind yourself who the vocational expert is. So I tried to set the book up to be as simple as possible to use plain language wherever I could. It's a very complicated system. So I don't wanna say that the book is simple, but I try to present it using plain language and lots and lots of hypothetical examples so that people can try and have the easiest time possible understanding what is an incredibly complex and legalistic program. Spencer, that's amazing. I, I'm so looking forward to ordering the book um, and to being introduced to you and be, to see what an advocate you are. I, I can feel the passion that you have for this community and understanding how complicated it is and you wanna help them and help them navigate the really challenging environment. I would also say to everybody, educate yourself. I think that's really our message today is that know, uh, know the processes that need to be in place. Spencer, what did I miss? Did I miss anything that we should talk about before we close? I don't, I don't, I don't wanna miss anything because this is so rich in information. I think you, you nailed it. The two takeaways from the book, uh, and obviously everyone should read the book because everything is fully fleshed out in the book. But the two main takeaways are one, educate yourself. An educated claimant is really, really crucial. Those 50-50 those odds, or that 30% approval rate at the hearing level, those odds change when people are educated. I wrote 2000 decisions. I know the difference in case presentation from someone who shows up completely unprepared and from someone who understands the law and understands what they have to prove and understands the story that they need to tell to the judge in order to be approved. The other major takeaway is have a representative. This is not the time to DIY. This is a time to have a legal professional by your side, even after you've read the book. Reading the book will be great. You'll be an educated claimant, but then go find a representative. You'll be that representative's most educated client. And together, an educated claimant and a professional qualified representative, that really is the best formula for success within the social security disability system. 
I'm so thankful that we had this time together, Spencer. Really valuable information. Thank you uh, for being with us today. I have to say that I, I believe that our listeners and hundreds of people will have uh, just have a better understanding and empowered own their success in making a claim. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, please subscribe to our podcast and share it with others. There's millions that are still struggling that you could help by providing this information. You can be a partner with us and follow us on Instagram and learn about the mission of Mind Your Brain and be an advocate and a voice for the invisible and making a, a significant difference in the world, a really powerful difference in the world. I wish to give you my virtual hug and tell you, you are not invisible to us.